0: Welcome, everybody, uh, back uh, to another week of Pastor Levi's office and Sunday school class. We're going to be covering uh, Acts chapter 19 uh, this morning, or, well, really, whenever it is you're going to get around watching it. Uh, So we've been going through this. We've been in the sections now for quite some time, dealing with uh, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Uh, So we'll do a quick review here, and we'll get in, uh, Carrie. Make sure you're paying attention, all right? If you're not, I'm going to find out one way or the other. So here we go. Let's go ahead and get into this, Uh, get into the review here. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, as we said at the beginning, they were serving at the church at Antioch, and they were um, praying and fasting, and they were called to missions. The church funded and sent them on their first missionary journey, so they went around and uh, started preaching, specifically on the island of Cyprus, and then into the southern areas of Galatia, and, and whatnot around there, and they've always started by preaching the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue. That's where they, they would always begin, and then they'd move on out to the Gentiles after uh, the Jews couldn't put up with them uh, any longer. At some point, uh, Paul's having such success, especially among the Gentiles, that a group of Jewish Christians come down uh, from Jerusalem, and they demand that Gentiles, in order to be saved, have to Uh, become Jews in essence. They have to be circumcised into the covenant of Abraham and they have to keep the law of Moses. And this leads to the council at Jerusalem, which is probably overstating the case, almost certainly not a full-on church council. Rather, the people who came down to Antioch to to tell them this said that the Jerusalem church had sent them. So we have two local churches dealing with some issues here and and the church in Jerusalem, uh, Peter, Paul, and uh, James all speak in unison and say, "No, this is not what God is doing. We have entered into a new era of fulfillment. So the so Jews are the Gentile believers do not need to keep the law and they do not need to be sacrificed or circumcised. circumcised. Instead, they have been saved by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, so a letter is then sent out to Gentile Christians, and Paul brings that with him on his second missionary journey. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have a falling out right before that over Mark." Because Mark had abandoned them on the first journey. And Mark uh, and Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. And Paul did not. So Barnabas and Mark go one way. Paul and Silas go another. And then on the second missionary journey, uh, Paul eventually meets up with Timothy. And then Luke as well for a time being. And again, some other individuals like Gaius and Aristarchus. And uh, yeah, all, all in all, they're traveling around. And Paul preaches in Philippi where he's imprisoned uh, and then he's set free, but he doesn't actually leave the jail. And the jailer is, is saved and he was beaten before that. And he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. But he's quietly then escorted out of town. He preaches in Berea where the Jews are more noble and they measure everything by the word of God. And they receive this word of Jesus Christ with eagerness and with faith. And then he then moves on uh, to Thessalonica after that and preaches the gospel there as well. So all that uh, all that leads then, um, eventually, he's chased out and uh, he ends up in Athens where he preaches uh, to the pagans, especially at Mars Hill or the Areopagus. He, he preaches there uh, starting with creation and the God is the creator and the judge of all. And then he works his way to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the second missionary journey uh, winds down then after that as he heads to Corinth. He stays there for a while, preaches, where he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla, uh, who are an exile out of Rome, Jewish Christians. And then he ends up in Ephesus with them as well. And he only stays for a short time and they ask him to remain with him. But he says, if the Lord wills, uh, I will come back, which is important because if we move into the third missionary journey here, uh, Paul's going to do just that. He's going to spend a lot of time. In Ephesus, a lot of time uh, with that uh, city. So here's a little map of the third missionary journey. It was introduced in our last, or in the back end of um, chapter 18, before we talked about Apollos a little bit. Apollos ended up in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside because he was lacking some of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he had done. Uh, so Apollos then sets out to Corinth, and we know from the letters to First and Second Corinthians. Uh, that that became an issue as some people started to say, "Hey, I'm following Apollos instead of Paul." Well, that really isn't the way Paul and Apollos' relationship worked. They were working together to preach uh, the gospel, preaching the same message. So, here's a little bit of the map. There you can see, uh, you can see, Ephesus there. So as he starts this uh, third missionary journey up there, in Antioch on the right, uh, or over there by uh, north of Jerusalem, by the edge of the sea. Uh, he starts going up through that Galatian area again, and he stops by these churches he has planted, sees how they're doing, and the the text really covers that really quickly. And then he we get this long period of time, both in the text uh, and in Paul's actual life in Ephesus. So, uh, nineteen pretty much deals all with Ephesus, and there's going to be some runover in that in chapter twenty, as well as Paul says farewell to the elders in Ephesus. So Ephesus is a major stop here in this third j- missionary journey before he moves on uh, to some other areas as well. So that's kind of our review. Let's go ahead and we will jump in here to Paul in Ephesus. Uh, yeah, Sorry, that's Acts 19, uh, 1 through 17. Acts 19, uh, 1 through 17. The word of the Lord reads, or 1 through 7. Sorry, Mistakes. Uh, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the water of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come. After him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. All So our big idea here is Paul arrives in our... Let me skip the big idea. Let me find it here in my notes. Our big idea here is that faith in the Old Testament isn't enough. You must believe In Jesus Christ. So this is um, a reoccurring theme throughout the entire book of Acts that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Jesus ushers in this new era of fulfillment, this new era of of redemption. And without him, your faith in anything of Abraham, Moses is worthless if you reject the substance of that who is the person of Jesus Christ. So faith in the Old Testament isn't enough. That's our big idea. You must believe in Jesus Christ. Christ. So here's Paul, Paul in Ephesus. Uh, in verse one, he arrives in Ephesus after going through those churches we just mentioned in Galatia and that surrounding area that he had planted. He comes back to Ephesus, just as he said, when he left, if the Lord wills, um, I will come back and I will stay with you. And that is exactly what he does. So he now comes to stay in Ephesus for some time. Eventually he from Ephesus, he writes the letters to the Corinthians uh, and Galatia uh, while in Ephesus and um, apollos will end up there with him at some point as well as he's writing uh, that letter to the corinthians uh as we move into verses two and three here we see let me read my bible a little bit here um two and three we see that he encounters this group of disciples and what he means by disciples here is not christian disciples there's probably some confusion at first but as you can see we'll see through paul's questions here he doesn't actually think they're christians once he's done talking with they're really disciples of, of John the Baptist. So verse 2, and he said to them, the disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no. So they haven't really believed. In fact, they haven't really believed in Jesus, as Paul's later question is going is going to make make clear here. See, in verse 3, now, and they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he said in verse 3, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism so their faith is in John the Baptist which is good right they should have had they should have believed John the Baptist John the Baptist was doing what God had called him to do but at some point they moved away uh, from the area of Judea and the Jordan River and they no longer uh, got any updates as to what John the Baptist did and what he was teaching and how it pointed to Christ. So at some point, their knowledge was cut off. They moved away. There wasn't social media. There wasn't newspapers. And they hadn't heard about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So they're going around teaching John the Baptist as a prophet, saying that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. And they're believing that John is right. And they're believing in this coming Messiah. They just don't know uh, that he's come. And as we've said many times throughout this, this study, the book of Acts is a book of transition. So we we transition from the Old Testament to the New, from the Old Covenants uh, to the New Covenants because of what Christ has done. And John the Baptist is a part of that transition, and so are his disciples here. So Paul and the disciples of John the Baptist here in this interaction, Paul's asking probing questions. And the way that he asks them tells us uh, a little bit about who they are. They don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't be a Christian. John chapter 3, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You're born of the Spirit. Uh, they, have, they haven't been baptized into the name of Jesus. They've only been baptized with the baptism of John. So that moves us to verse 4. They said, or, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him. That is Jesus. So the main problem, Paul says, is you haven't believed in the one who has came after him. The whole point of John's ministry was to say, this Jesus, pointing at him, right? This Jesus, he's it. He's the one I'm here to tell you about. And so if you believe in John the Baptist and you don't believe in Jesus, then you haven't actually believed in John the Baptist uh, the way that you should. So their problem is an ignorance of who John was prophesying about. And that is Jesus Christ. So they are primed and ready because John did prepare the way. And the preparing of that way uh, is, is this repentance that he's preaching, this turning away from their sins. But the Old Testament and John Baptist as the, as the pinnacle of that Old Testament is just preparing the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So when, G, when Jesus says later to some of John's other disciples in the Gospels, or actually before, before this in timeline, but after John the Baptist's ministry, when he says to them, and to the crowds, uh, when they ask, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus says to the crowds after the disciples leave, there's no one greater who has come before than John the Baptist. He's the greatest. But the least of these, the least of those in my kingdom are going to be greater than John the Baptist. How can you say this? Well, how is John the greatest? Well, John is the greatest because he gets to do uh, the very thing that all of the Old Testament was about, that all the Old Testament prophets wanted to do, which was actually identify that Messiah, that Savior, the one who's prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, uh, the offspring of Abraham, uh, the king who would sit upon David's throne, the anointed one, the one who would usher in God's rule and God's kingdom. All of the Old Testament is building to that. And John the Baptist is the pinnacle of the Old Testament because he gets to be the one to say, it's him. This is the guy we've all been waiting for. Right? And that means he's the greatest of the Old Testament in that respect. But he's also then going to be least than he's going to be lesser than the least of the kingdom. Because now the kingdom is a new fulfillment of all those things that the Old Testament has talked about. So even the least in that kingdom will be greater than the ones who are waiting uh, for that kingdom to come. So their problem is this ignorance of Jesus, uh, but they get corrected here by. By the Apostle Paul. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about uh, 12 men in all. So here's this pattern we see again and again throughout the book of Acts Uh, there's repentance, there's faith in the name of Jesus, and then after that, uh, there is baptism. Uh, So the, the clear form of Paul's questions here beforehand is that they were missing something. Uh, that they weren't really Christians yet at this point. They were ready and primed to become ones, uh, but he preaches the gospel to them, and now they have entered into uh, those promises. So this section here sets us up uh, really well for some theology and practice uh, to talk about. Uh, And then we're going to talk a little bit about the basic Christian experience. And by that, I mean uh, the basic Christian experience of conversion, of becoming a Christian. What is it? What does it look like? What do we all share in common uh, when we talk about this? Now, uh, just rewinding a little bit, I, I didn't mention this, but there are some abnormal things that happen in this too. So not all Christians, for example, will have the apostles lay their hands upon them. Right? The apostles aren't with us anymore. Uh, so John or Paul lays his hands upon the apostles of John here. And in doing so, that is something unique that you and I will not ever experience. And there's also, as, we, as we've said here, There's also uh, a unique speaking of tongues here. These people didn't know about Pentecost, but now Pentecost has, in essence, caught up to them. They have now had their own mini-Pentecost, as it were, and now they have the Spirit. The sign has been shown that they have indeed received the Spirit. Now, we have many other conversion stories in the book of Acts where it is not immediately followed with speaking in tongues. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it plain, plain that not everyone will receive that gift. So even if you believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still active today, uh, not everyone receives the same one as crystal clear in the Bible. So there are some Pentecostal groups who will say that, hey, uh, speaking in tongues is a sign that you have been saved. It means that um, you have indeed been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And there's other Pentecostals who will divide uh, Christians into two different groups. So let will say, see, so look, these followers of John the Baptist were one group of Christians who hadn't been baptized yet in the Holy Spirit. And then there's some higher groups of Christians who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But that's not what Paul's doing here. He's telling them, by the questions that he's asking, you don't know about the Spirit, you don't know about Jesus, you only know about repentance, you don't know about faith, right? that you're not actually with us yet. You're ready for it, but you're not there yet. So there is no justification in this passage uh, for this universal uh, baptism of the Spirit in the sense that it will be manifested in in uh, speaking in tongues. And there's no justification here really for a two-tier approach to Christians. And in fact, uh, Paul actually makes it plain also in the letter to the first Corinthians that some people who speak in tongues are full of it, who are lying. And uh, that's not a surefire sign that you are good with God. Now, so the so what are the what are the things we see here as the basics of the Christian experience of conversion, as it were? And we see all four of them here. These are universal. We see them throughout the book of Acts here. And the first is repentance. John prepared the way for Jesus Christ by preaching repentance, by preaching on the sins of the people. And that would be their repentance would be manifested in being baptized in John's baptism. This is still a necessary step, not John's baptism, but repentance. You cannot, you cannot come to Christ without repenting of your sins. It is impossible. That is the needed preparation before the next step. And the next universal step, that is true of all Christians, all Christians must repent, and all Christians must have faith in Christ. Not just a general faith in some Messiah, but in the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ. Christ, we need faith in Him. All right, so repentance is a change in heart, a change of mind, a change of attitude that works itself out in faith. As I've said before, these are two sides of the same coin; they always come together. True repentance leads to true faith, and true faith uh, has repentance with it. So let me put it this way: without repentance, faith, or uh, without faith, repentance is incomplete. If you do not have faith, your repentance is incomplete. It's not good enough to just say, my sin is wrong. It has to lead then to a faith. But without repentance, faith is impossible. If you just stay in your sin, you will never believe. So this trusting in Jesus Christ, uh, the repentance and the faith work together. The third thing as initiation into uh, the Christian community, into the kingdom of God, is baptism. One of the sad uh, statuses of Baptist life uh, today is that baptism has become kind of unimportant. Uh, Baptism is a command, as I've said, of Jesus, given to us. And the fact that uh, Baptists today, many Baptists today, minimize the importance of baptism because it doesn't save, which it doesn't, um, is a sad, sad reality. We would be, anybody who does that is out on an island as far as the Christian faith is concerned in the last 2,000 years. Baptism is important. Baptism is necessary. It does not save you, but Christ has commanded it, and you should do it. Baptism represents this repentance and faith, those first two steps. It represents the washing away of your sin. It represents being rose again in new life uh, in Christ. The idea of an unbaptized Christian would be odd. To Paul. If he were to encounter an unbaptized Baptist today, he would say, You're lacking something. It's not that you are saved by the baptism, but it's not okay to just ignore the commands of Christ. And then, fourth, uh, all Christians also receive the Spirit. Right? The Christian life is impossible without the Spirit. This does not mean that all Christians receive the Spirit in the same way. It does not mean that every Christian has to speak in tongues. All right. We've already, as I said, We've already seen many, many conversions here where that wasn't the case. It is the case here as an external sign that these people who are lacking have received uh, what they're lacking. But the the Christian life really does begin with receiving the Spirit as He transforms your heart, enables repentance and faith and sanctification without us relying on the Spirit. Without the Spirit, there is no life. Without the Spirit, there is no growing in holiness. Without the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So these are the four universals of the Christian uh, conversion experience. And all four parts are necessary uh, to be a Christian. And we see this here in the conversion of some of John the Baptist's disciples. This will lead us here into our next section. Next section, uh, Paul confronts Jews and Pagans. I do not know what I'm what's happening here, but it's uh Acts again 19, uh, eight through twenty. Let's go ahead and read. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months, so he were in Ephesus again, remember, he entered the synagogue, and for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, that is Paul, withdrew from them, and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. These continued for two years, So that all residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits uh, came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Our big idea here is that God's might prevails over the powers of this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, this is a big idea. that uh, Pretty much follows the entire mission, all of the missionary journeys and the starting of the church in Jerusalem. Um, this might be just one of those main points of the entire book. That God is showing his might through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we, we break down this passage here, Big idea, God is flexing his muscles as it were. We start with Paul's normal activity as he comes into a town, Uh, he's confronting both Jews and pagans, uh, and he preaches to the Jews first for three months or about 12 Sabbath days. uh, Paul is preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's reasoning with them from the Old Testament that this Jesus is the, the Christ. It makes sense that he does this for so long because. Remember his first stop in Ephesus, he was preaching in the synagogue and they begged him to come back. Well, now he's back and they've given him an extended period of time uh, to preach and to teach. And as he does this, uh, some within that synagogue start to speak ill of the way, which is just a shorthand for the Christian uh, faith. And they're speaking so evil of it that Paul says, I'm done with you. I'm moving on and he moves then out to the Gentiles and he rents out a hall in ephesus of tyrannus which of course means dictator tyrannosaurus rex whatever you want to think about or tyrant right this man's name is tyrannus and he rents out a lecture hall that other people would use other philosophers and religions would use to make their case and he rents out the hall and he is openly publicly inviting people in uh gentiles and for two years he teaches the gospel in this way and through this way he reaches all the residents of asia now that doesn't mean that everyone in that area heard Paul teach. But it does mean that he reached all types from all different regions of of this area, came and heard uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ preached by Paul. And as he's doing this, God is accompanying him with extraordinary miracles, verses 11 through 12. If you have your Bibles, you really do want to see this. This is is important. It says, God was doing extraordinary, extraordinary miracles. Miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, any miracle is extraordinary. But Luke goes out of his way to tell us that even among the miracles, this is different. This is odd. Right? This isn't the way things normally happen. In fact, we see something very similar to this happening early on with the church in Jerusalem with Peter. That people even wanted to have his shadow fall over, over them. That healing might come about them. Uh, so you see here uh, that that even if a garment had touched Paul and it goes and touches someone else, they're healed or their demons are are cast out of them. So you can see here that the New Testament does set up a difference here between physical diseases, which are being healed by this, and exorcisms and spiritual diseases. There, there is a separation between the two. Can a, X, uh, can of demon possession lead to some physical problems of course it can uh, but there are there is a distinction not all physical ailments are the result of demon possession but the point here is that God is doing this extraordinary work through Paul but it's God's power that's being revealed it's God who is doing this it is not indeed Paul so God is doing these extraordinary uh, things and um, and and as they do this, a word spreads, and some itinerant uh, Jewish exorcists are going to say, "Hey, this seems to be working, so we're going to do it too. We're going to be uh, following. We're going to invoke the name of Jesus and the name of Paul, even though we don't believe." And this will show us again that only the real deal works. There's there's no small amount of irony here. So these are people from the high priestly family of Sceva, not the actual probably high priest, but within his his family, and they're traveling around, and they're exorcists, and we know from the New Testament that the exorcisms that Jesus did were a whole lot different than what the Jewish exorcists were doing, because they would say, the people would comment that he's doing this with authority and power, and the Jews get so jealous of him that they're saying, he must be working with Beelzebub if he's able to do this, because we can't do this, so he's got to be in league with the Satan himself in order to be able to have this kind of power over the demons. Um, so these these Jewish exorcists see this and they say, hey, well, we should start using Jesus' name too. And we'll even use Paul's name. And the irony really falls in that as they do this, the demon-possessed man looks them in the eyes and he says, I know Jesus. I know this Paul. I know the power they have. And you aren't it. It ain't you. right? You don't really believe in this. And what ends up happening is instead of the demon being exorcised or brought out, of the person they're the ones who are cast out the demon beats them up strips them naked and chases them out of the house so we see here that the power of the gospel is not some cheap trifle it's not something that can be mimicked or copied Uh, it only is given by god by grace uh, through faith as it were so word of this reaches around the country and uh, fear and praise is the response now We should park on this too. I know I've already said that a few times here, but in response to all of this, the town, it says, has a fear of God. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. So they respond with a proper amount of awe and fear, because this God who is doing this is a whole lot different than the gods that they have been worshiping. It's a whole lot different than anything else They have seen, so they are rightfully fearful of God. He's got their attention. He's doing a mighty work in Ephesus. This same God who casts out and heals is the same God who will judge them and will judge us. So it is right to look at God and to have a proper amount of fear and respect and offering. But they also praise Him because He's doing good works. He is doing mighty things, and He is showing them and He's showing us that uh, he is in control, and that we are finite. We are unable to save ourselves. Now, as we think about uh, the chaos that's going on in our own society today, we really should be struck with a fear, but not of a virus. Should you have prudence when it comes to this thing? Sure, but you should fear God. God's hand in some way has moved against us as a world, as a country. And God is good and righteous in His judgment, and the proper response is not pandemic. It's not going crazy. It's not following mobs, which we'll talk a little bit more lately. It's repentance of our own wickedness. As we as we look at this, when we see these things and we understand that God is sovereign and in control of everything, you need to stop worrying so much about a virus. That doesn't mean don't take precautions, but it does mean that your your life should not be driven. By this fear, rather, you should turn and look to God and fear and awe of him and praise him for how great and mighty he is. And this, then, this faith that we see in the passage here leads to a total, a rather shocking uh, form of repentance. Look at uh, verse 18 and 19. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, saying, we were wrong. Let me tell you these wicked and evil things that we were doing. The fear of the Lord should move to that type of repentance. And then verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts bought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them to be fifth, or that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, the piece of silver there is about a day laborer's wage. So you have 50,000 days of work going up in smoke, burned. Oh, uh, Some prudent uh, th- thinkers there might have said, well, m- well, we don't believe in these things anymore. We can get rid of them. We can sell them uh, to someone else. But no, that's not what repentance looks like. You don't profit off of wickedness. You don't profit off of your old life. You renounce it and you destroy it and you put it to death. It was common in the ancient world to sell spell books. One of the things that made the that was supposed to increase the potency of a spell was to keep it secret. So these types of books where there's some of these books and displays in museums around the world that they found from antiquity, uh, these books were to remain secret and they were very, very valuable. And they would use these to manipulate God's healings, all these other things. But these things have been found utterly worthless and powerless in comparison to what God is doing through Paul in his ministry here. So what do the people do? They do exactly what they should do in repentance. They renounce their sin. They destroy it. They hate it. They crush it. They have a public burning of these spell books, and they put them uh, they put them to the flame, and they are no more. They don't profit off of them. They not say, "Well, I don't believe in this thing. I know it's nonsense." But I'm but I got to think about myself. I got to think about feeding my family. No, trust God. Trust God. Renounce your sin and and find life in Him. And that moves us to the main point that Paul, I'm sorry, Luke tells us about this entire story, which is verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God is stronger than anything Ephesus has seen to this point. He is stronger than anything we have experienced, than anything we will experience. So Luke tells us that's the main point. God is prevailing through the teaching. He's prevailing through the miracles. And it is evidenced by this repentance and the burning of these pagan of rituals and this uh, religious nonsense that has taken hold of Ephesus. So that leads us uh, to the last section of this passage, a riot for Artemis. You want to impress a girl, what you should do is you should uh, have a riot out in the street, because why not? That's exactly what's going on here. Uh, Verses 21 through 41. It's a bit longer section here, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read it to you. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, a Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered... Together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I know, absurd, right? And there is danger, not only that in this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed or deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Argaius Gai- and Aristarchus Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel but then, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd the disciples would not let him therefore sorry we're missing a verse here I'll find it in my bible here verse uh, 31 and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he demiss- or dismissed the assembly. Our big idea here is Christianity poses a threat to the systems of this world that reject the lordship of Christ, but God still reigns. There's a sense in which Demetrius is 100% right. There's a sense in which uh, that Christianity can and does eventually bring down Artemis and the temple in Ephesus. As Christianity becomes the dominant religion in Rome, uh, the Roman gods are cast aside as worthless because they are. Uh, So, our Christianity always does stand against the systems of this world. And it always does and always will pose a threat to them. But we must remember that God reigns supreme. So, let's dive into the text a little bit. Now, this section starts with a discussion about what Paul's travel plans are. and He's he's preparing to leave Ephesus. Uh, Why is there stress on this here? I think the best why Luke tells us here is that Paul was getting ready to leave. And he wants you to understand that he wasn't going to leave because of what happened. The riot's not what drove him from Ephesus. He was already uh, making his way to go on to some new areas and some new churches. Uh, but uh, before that can happen, we get introduced to this problem, this threat uh, to the local economy and to the local religion and really civic pride. So with these large-scale conversions and with the public spectacle Oh, that was coming uh, because of them, the public burning of these pagan rituals and these pagan uh, books. Uh, such changes do impact a society a society. As a community becomes more and more Christian, it does change. It does renew governmental structures, religious structures, all of that is impacted as the more Christianized an area becomes. We see this in our own history as a country and we see the lack of it as our country becomes less influenced by Christianity. Uh, so such change our emphasis was known in the ancient world uh, for its worship of the goddess Artemis. And it was known for its temple. In fact, this temple is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you think about the Parthenon in Athens, uh, and it's holding all statues of all the gods and, and whatnot, um, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was four times the Size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was an absolute magnificent uh, building and it brought, it was renowned in its area, brought a lot of trade and money and uh, tourism uh, to Ephesus. So it was not only a religious thing, it was a source of civic pride uh, for the town and it was also a source of economic money for the people. So Demetrius in particular is. Uh, probably the leader of a local guild of silversmiths, he has um, he calls these guys together and he says hey, they're saying that these idols that we're making with our hands aren't gods. It's kind of absurd that you would get upset about that. Uh, but Obviously, a, a god made by our own hands is no god at all. Uh, it's death, mute, blind, and stupid. It's a metal object as it were, but it's also the source of Demetrius and these silversmiths income. So his his appeal to the people is the reputation of their civic pride of the Temple of Artemis and the uh, identity of being an Ephesian, uh, the economic impact, and the fact that Artemis is a goddess and we should all worship her. So his acu- his accusations is that Paul's religion is going to bring a downfall of that. And he's right. And then history proves that eventually that's what happened. Uh, Ephesus And the Roman Empire cast out these false gods as it became the Holy Roman Catholic Empire. So eventually, that does come true. So the the threats, as I said, are threefold. Economy, religion, and civic identity, and pride. So this leads then to a riot. So the rallying cry is the greatness of Artemis of the Ephesians. Right. So they storm out into the street, and they start chanting how great Artemis is and how great really Ephesus is. And this leads to the crowd swelling and many of them not knowing what the source is but hey we all love Artemis too and we all love Ephesus too so we're all storming out into the street here rioting and declaring the greatness as a uh, as a, of Artemis so as they do this they pick up those who know what's going on uh, they pick up Gaius and Aristarchus two of the traveling companions of Paul they can't find Paul but they join them and they end up in this theater as it were shouting for hours on end of how great artemis is and at this point paul finds out now look at verse look at verse 13:31. 31 when paul wished to go in among the crowd the disciples would not let him and even some of the asiarchs who are friends of his sent to him urging him not to venture into the theater so paul sees this he sees a couple of his friends in trouble He's been in, in difficult situations before. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been stoned almost to death. Uh, and He says, I'm going. I'm not scared of this crowd. I'm not scared of this mob uh, mentality. I have, Paul has this boldness, but his boldness is thwarted. The disciples, uh, the fellow Christians say, Paul, you can't go out there. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. And then some Asiarchs all say the same. Now, Who are the Asiarchs? They're leaders. They're people of high places. They send word to Paul. Apparently, they know Paul. Apparently, Paul's made some friends in high places at this point, And they know Paul well enough to know that when he finds out, he's going to come. He's not a, a shrinking violet, as it were. He is a man who's going to stand there. And if you're going to, and he's not going to be intimidated uh, by violence or death. He has a full trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a full trust in the sovereignty of God. So he says, I'm going, but he is convinced that those will probably make the situation worse if he does. But as the mob has its uh, victims there, we can see a description of the mob here in verse 32. Now some cried out with one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of them the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, so let me get a couple tidbits here about this crowd. Uh, There's people there who have no idea why they're there. They're just joining the crowd in the confusion. Uh, As as hysteria sweeps, let 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 the listener hear, let the reader understand. As hysteria sweeps... Uh, mobs and groups form that are not functioning on facts or reason it's just it's just a mob and this is why mobs and hysteria are never ever uh, a good idea and there's never something that christians should be following Uh, so this confusion and anger sweeps forward and they're so angry at these christians that uh, there's some jews caught up in this as well alexander's one of them and the jews put him forward probably to speak to say hey we're not with them. Us Jews are different, but the crowd recognizes that this man's a Jew, so he doesn't worship Artemis, so they shout him down. All right, Nothing new there, right? We have some mobs, uh, especially political mobs lately, uh, before this virus thing happened, who would go around, and what they would do is shout people down, even on college campuses. If somebody comes in and speaks against us, we're not going to reason with them. We're not going to try to prove them wrong. We're just going to shout at them until they shut up. Well, again, there's nothing new under under the sun. So this mob is confused. It's full of anger. It's not performing uh, performing, uh, rationally. And again, I do want to stress this. Our world today is acting like a mob. It really is. It is acting like a mob driven to and from by hysteria. We need more of the boldness of Paul as Christians. The willingness to say, I'm not scared of the mob. I'm not going to act like the mob. I'm not going to be kowtowed by the mob, unless of the actual mob. I'm not saying don't take precautions. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be washing your hands or or thinking about those who are, who are more vulnerable than yourself. You should, but you cannot, you must not, as a believer in Christ, be driven by fear. You cannot, you must not go along with the flow of these mobs. These online mobs are... The government, as it is, each domino is the the latest catastrophe. When the numbers really don't add up for the type of reaction that we're having at this point, uh, so take precautions. Yes, be wise. Yes, but part of that wisdom, and part of being a Christian, is not giving into fear, is trusting in the sovereignty of God, knowing that He has appointed all the days of your life, and knowing with certainty that you will be uh, risen again with the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. Uh, however you die, for you will die at some point. Um, death is not the final word. Christ is. So as we continue on in this, sto- in this uh, story here, if you're still with me, 46 minutes in here, uh, a rebuttal is offered. And this rebuttal is offered by uh, the town clerk. Uh, so what's the town clerk? Uh, the town clerk would be a high-ranking official, as it were, uh, the high-ranking official. I was was especially in charge of relating and being a uh, liaison between the Roman government the, the larger federal government would be the comparison we would use today the imperial government with the local government of Ephesus so this is a man a man of great importance and he knows how to quell this mob he does an excellent job of dissecting their arguments and getting them to dis- disperse right and it basically boils down into four main points that he makes first He says, none or no one can question the greatness of Artemis and the greatness of Ephesus. So he affirms them in their main chant, right? That great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And he says, no one can question that we are the temple keeper, that we are the pinnacle here of the worship of Artemis, that a a stone from heaven fall from this goddess to us, a meteorite. Right, that was considered in the ancient world a gift from the gods, that was fallen to us here in Ephesus so that we could be the keeper of Artemis. And we have built this great temple. And no one, not even these Christians, not even Paul, can deny the greatness of Artemis and the temple. That's not entirely true. right? So he's a false god. That's the gospel message. Uh, but that's where he starts. The next point he makes is that these people haven't actually attacked Artemis. All right, so they're not sacrilegious. They haven't looted the temple. They haven't said to shut down the temple. Now, given the opportunity and the right circumstances, Paul almost certainly would have said those things, um, but not now. Not at this point in in the history of Ephesus. Instead, uh, what the the town clerk is most likely getting at here is that the people need to, or the people need to understand that these people are Jews, and the Jews are exempt here. They don't worship our gods. And that's fine. It's not sacrilegious. They're not tearing down this temple. You need to get over it. The third point he makes is where he really starts to put the screws to these individuals, where he says, the, there are proper channels for your complaints. And this ain't it. This ain't it. Look at uh, verse 38 there. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. He says, this ain't justice. This is not the way that we handle disputes. We have courts. We have pro-councils. We have a general assembly. You can bring your complaints to them, but you cannot form uh, this riotous mob and try to get uh, stoning or whatever, whatever their goal is. We don't really entirely know. But his point is, there are proper channels for you to go through for your complaints. If you want to continue on with this, you can go through those channels. But this mob cannot continue. And that leads to his last point in verse 39, which really puts the hammer down. But if you are, I'm sorry, verse, verse 40 really. Uh, For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. So he's saying we are in danger of Rome sending in troops to quell a riot. Rome did not Look fondly upon public riots like this. So his warning to them is you're the ones who are behaving badly here. And if you keep acting this way, the entire city of Ephesus, the greatness of Ephesus will come into question because we will have an imperial lockdown, as it were, upon this town. And there will be punishments for the entire city of Ephesus for your behavior. So you need to stop. If you have charges, you can bring them in the proper channels, but you can't riot. And really, as the town clerk, one of his jobs would have been probably to report the riot. So he says, we're in danger here. This could happen. So what are you going to do? And that leads us to the end of this chapter. Uh, the crowd uh, disperses. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly and they all left. The riot has been calmed. People have come back to their senses. Uh, the reasoned defense has been made. And uh, the church has been delivered yet again. We don't know if if uh, Demetrius and company ever did file charges, but it seems that the church has come through this rather unscathed, and God's power has been uh, displayed. So that leads us uh, to the end here of chapter 19. Uh, most likely, almost certainly, we won't be meeting in person again on this next Sunday, so I'll post again sometime next week uh, Acts chapter 20. and We'll wrap up this, this part in Ephesus, as it were, with Paul. As he says, farewell to the elders and leaders of that church. Very informative, very important passage for our understanding of how the church functions, how pastors function, and all of that. So we'll pick that up again next week. I miss seeing you guys all. Unfortunately, we'll probably be in my office again next week, but hopefully we'll be seeing each other again shortly. Thank you, and uh, I hope you're all doing well out there.